Welcome to the Amber Knight Superhero Podcast with Simo Suahemo. This show is your backstage pass to discussions with world-class influencers in the field of health and high performance. We bring you the selected tips and insights that you can use to upgrade your life and become unstoppable. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another discussion on the depths of the mind, training your mind, training your brain, mastering your daily experience of life through tools such as mindfulness and meditation. I'm joined by Inka Immonen, a dear friend and an expert in something that I like to call a super combination of, of having a personal transformation story in terms of mastering your mind, mastering pain, and also combining that with studies in psychology and a well-versed understanding of some of the key literature, as well as combining that with your experience as a yoga teacher. Now, that's something that I like to call a super combination. We always have fantastic discussions with you, and I'm very excited to be sharing this talk with you right now, Inga. Well, thank you so much for the introduction, Simo. I'm really overwhelmed by all the positive words that you just told. Thank you so much. It's amazing to be here, and I, this is my favorite topic, so I love chatting with you, as always. We're also colleagues at Amber Knight, and you're, you've been creating some amazing assets and tools for our audience when it comes to meditation and, and morning priming. In fact, I did a morning priming myself this morning, and, and that's also something we can get into. But first, meditation has played a massive role for me and my life in a really a profoundly changing my understanding of how I can affect my own moods, my own experiences, my own thought process, and the identification to my own thoughts. And some of the benefits that I've, I've witnessed myself firsthand have been so profound that they sound almost fake when I describe them. So what I've noticed that as a chronic thinker, I've managed to gather more consistency into understanding my own thoughts, naming some of the motivations behind the feelings that I'm going through, naming some of the causes, and understanding how petty and, and little and even ridiculous those can sometimes be, and becoming somehow healthily detached from those in my personal life and in my life as an entrepreneur. And Meta-awareness, right? Exactly, meta-awareness. And th- that is definitely something that, that uh, I've tried to understand more of the Rowling, and I would love to dive into that with you understanding what's what's the scientific evidence and, and what do we really know about these states and their long-term effects on the human mind? Mm, that's a that's a wide question. That's an interesting one. Uh, there is a lot of research at the moment in meditation. So since like, well, the past 50 years have been really revealing for us in terms of meditation because also we have so many new tools so we can look at the brain we can measure the biological markers like inflammation levels, you know, uh, cortisol levels, hormones. We can measure so many things. And then in addition to that, we can measure the psychological changes, changes in the mood, changes in anxiety, as you told, or like depression or sleep. And it has been, there is a lot of data now showing the benefits of meditation. And obviously the interesting question is that, is meditation the one that actually is the effective, you know, factor when we do these studies? So many people uh, at this day appreciate the long-term data, the causal relationship. And it's interesting because now we have evidence also 
with long-term benefits and causal effects that meditation can actually change the structure and the function of the brain, a phenomena called neuroplasticity, which has become like a really interesting topic in psychology these days. And yeah, we can see people's mood and attitude towards life changing and maybe even perception changing in a in a way that when you become more aware of the signals in your body and your own emotions you can refocus your attention better and maybe observe some things or think things or think differently think think stuff that you didn't think before you know, the meditation practice. But if you have any, like, specific that you want to dive into, then... Well, there are several, because I'm truly fascinated by this topic. I think uh, I, I would love to understand more about some of the causal effects that we can actually measure from the brains of long-term meditators. What does some of that data look like? Okay, so some of the brain changes that has been measured uh, is in the brain uh, structure and the function functionality of the brain so basically using functional mri or mri images we can see that uh, there is for example there is gray matter density can increase so basically the yeah the mass of your brain there are white matter tracts that can increase in density so those connections that uh, in the brain between different brain areas we can see some specific parts in brain growing so for example uh, areas in 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 the limbic system in hippocampus for example there is neuronal growth so these areas are linked to memory and learning and you can see that when you stop meditation practice these areas can shrink in back so i think it, it, like these are obviously like preliminary studies and we're like how we search the brain or observe brain matter increasing or decreasing or changes in the brain structure and function this is all quite new technology still so we need to be aware of that but i think it's only logical that we see brain changes in a very same way that we see your muscle change when you when you work out your muscle and for example dr richard davidson and dan coleman has this book called alter traits where they emphasize the point that mental training is not any different it's not different from any other other kind of systematic practice that can alter your brain structure and function and increase the brain matter in certain areas so for example if you it, it has been observed that in violinists you can see that their gray matter grows and the areas in the brain grows that um is uh, is responsible for the left fingers left hand fingertips because they use them more and i think it makes sense if you think about and you know dan dan uh, harris i think uh wrote the book 10 percentage happier and he made this kind of nice quote that meditation is uh like bicep curls for the brain i really love that analogy yeah, so <laughs> if, you, if you use your bicep if you work out your bicep that will uh, you know, your muscle mass will increase. And if you stop working out, it will decrease again. So, yeah, it, it makes sense if you just, you know, think about it in a, in a common sense. Exactly. And, and it does make also sense from an evolutionary perspective because we, we do have a strong evidence that we, we are very adaptable. And for many people, it does seem to come as a surprise that the brain is not static. 
And our, yeah. our person, even our personality traits, we're only starting to discover that even those are not static, but are actually in flux, and they respond to how we use our brain. And, and that is that is a truly fascinating thing to acknowledge because what what that really means to me, at least on a personal level, is that I am deeply responsible, and and I have the the opportunity of creating the type of mind that I that I would love to have. And, and that, that is actually a, a, a message of hope for many people, for many of us that, for example, feel that we are, in a sense, not only experienced, but at, at times suffering with too much thinking, maybe anxiety, uh, maybe too much focus on the future or, or for some people for the past. For myself, I find that sometimes it would be healthy for me to find new ways of calming myself down and calming my mind and becoming more present and, and becoming more aware of how external stimuli can like almost take control of my attention in ways that I don't always wish would be the case. So, yeah. so this is a message of hope. Yeah, definitely. I mean, meditation can cause neuroplastic changes. And as you said, it can definitely change the way you see the world. I mean, if you if you train positive emotions, for example, you can become more optimistic. It has been shown that we majority of the people have a negativity bias, so we pay more attention to negative threats or, you know, which makes sense that evolutionary that we need to be aware of the threats around us, but we don't have so many threats anymore that we had, you know, back in the day, right. and now it becomes maladaptive. So if you start training, you know, seeing more, looking live in the more optimistic way, which can be done with meditation, it can definitely change your personality, I believe. And um, have you observed any um, changes? Can you, can you like point out kind of like a personality change? Now, this is something that I've been, I've been thinking for quite a while. And, and uh, to be honest, for me, it's really hard because I can never know. Like, I feel like I've experienced that type of growth and especially and it's really hard to d- distinguish from from the awareness of the traits of personality and for example understanding my own psychology more so so i really can't point out any d- real differences that i that i would have could attribute to my meditation practice however what i can point out clearly is that that in many situations i can i can clearly feel that i would have i, I would have reacted differently unless i had uh, practiced meditation for example in situations where like you know, it's small things, and it doesn't always work out in a predictable manner. But for example, like, I had my bike stolen a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, like, with, with my personality, that could really piss me off for, for, for a lot of, you know, like, in, you know, like, there was a time in my life, like, nine times out of ten, you know, like, something like that happens. And it was, you know, like, I, I could tell you the story. Like, I was bicycling to work, and I, I just left my bicycle on the backyard for unlocked, which was a stupid thing to do, for only a couple of minutes because I was just, you know, like picking up something from the living room and, and running back. And literally during those 120 seconds, my bike got stolen. But instead of reacting the way I would have assumed I would have reacted, I was just noticing like, huh. Now there's a feeling of frustration, there's a feeling of surprise, there's a feeling of, of a sudden surge of negativity, but instead of becoming those feelings i could point them out and i just observed them and this to me was one of the big wow moments like hmm simo this is this is something unusual instead of becoming those feelings instead of becoming pissed off by, that my bike got stolen and now i'm going to be late for work 
and I'm never going to see my bike again, I could just objectively point out those feelings and like, okay, there's really something here. And this doesn't, you know, like this probably wouldn't have happened a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. What an amazing story. And thank you so much for、uh, sharing that story. That's a really good example of I think, what I think is like what mindfulness meditation can, you know, do or help in. Because, you know, we have in, in, in our lives, we have this what's called existential flow. So it means like all the sensory input that we receive, the sounds that we are now hearing, the colors that we are observing, the object around us and the noises and Our thoughts become like, merge together and create an experience in each moment, right? So we feel like we we live in a coherent world and our mind is like integrated, right? But then with meditation, mindfulness meditation, you can train to observe each individual type of sensory signal as kind of separate and also without attributing any meaning to them. So we can hear now there is a lot of birds singing, like, I love that. And it immediately makes me feel happy, right? But what you could do and train with meditation is that you just listen. It Is it high pitch? Is it low pitch? Is it short, long sound? And you try to remove the, what, what causes it. What emotions do you have in regards of the sounds? And also now we can hear the cars coming, so we can see like, okay, is it lower or higher pitch than the birds? You know, and without even naming the sounds. And this is like what can kind of like shift your attention from this existential flow where everything is integrated and you make make it as like a scene to meta awareness, where you understand that okay, there is this signal. But it actually necessarily does not mean anything. It's just raw data that comes into my brain, and I can choose my reaction. I can choose how I relate to those signals that comes from outside, and also what comes from inside. Because you know, emotions comes partially from our you know biological system. So you know everything like your sensory,、um, your nervous system. Sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, your hormones, everything affects on on your emotions. So you can also detach from those those emotions, and you can just see like, okay, my heart rate is elevated,、mm-hmm. my heart is pumping, and you know I feel like a bit、uh, tense in my muscles, like I'm feeling frustrated because my bike got stolen. But do I have to make it me? Do I have to be that signal, or can I just observe it? Like as a raw data from my biological body, and that's the challenge. So that's the that's the kind of we actually have two two different pathways in a sense. We have the emotional signal where you identify identify some emotion to your biological signals and the biological pathway.、Hmm. And、um, yeah, for example, insula is the kind of a brain area that is linked to this integration of the emotional and,、uh, and biological signal. And with meditation, it has been shown that you can you can activate the insula and kind of you know balance or reframe the situation in a really clever way. Reframe these automatic responses where you where you identify yourself with your emotion. And I、mm. actually do this a lot with.、Um, With pain, because as I've told you, I have a, I have chronic headaches, and so I know that when there is a biological signal, I will get emotionally anxious and frustrated. So then I use the meditation to kind of、um, try and observe and detach my identity from the physical pain signal and start listening that as an external noise in a similar way that I listen to sounds or see objects. 
around me. This is fascinating. Is there any any research literature around treating pain with meditation? And what are some of the basic mechanisms that we we have started to uncover in this field? Yeah, there is actually a lot of lot of research in in chronic pain and meditation, and I think the point or what now has been revealed is that, as I told, we have this biological pain signaling. Obviously, like we we as humans, we always feel pain, and it's it's a good mechanism to have so that we don't like when we touch a hot plate that we would pull our hand you know, out from the plate. Been kind of essential to our survival as as primates. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But then we also have the emotional component of the of the pain, which is more of a like our self like evaluation. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this negative? Is this positive? Sort of thing to simplify it. And it has been shown that in meditation actually the pain signaling like it looks like we, we cannot reduce the pain signaling, the evo- evolutionary pain signaling, you know, in our nervous system. But what we can do, we can reduce the emotional component or the kind of like the identification. We can control the emotions, the, the, our ideas, our evaluation of the brain. And these have been linked to brain areas such as uh, orbitofrontal cortex and insula, which is also responsible for self-regulation and mm. self-awareness and self-knowledge. And this is really interesting because it looks like you get the biological biological pain signal, but the emotional component gets regulated. So, yeah, there are two different kind of pathways. And I think this is the really interesting that, you know, you can tell that you have the pain, but you're not suffering. This is uh, truly fascinating. So what you're doing is you're not doing anything to the signal. You're still receiving the signal, right? But you're not affected by the signal in a way that a normal person would assume that you would respond to that signal. Yeah. And there is also some studies that perhaps it can also reduce the pain signals to reach the kind of areas where we process the pain. So um, meditation in general... Just a signal rather than pain because pain is separate from the signal Um, i'm trying to wrap my head around yeah so what i'm trying to say is that so the first mechanism would be kind of balanced emotional response Mm, right right and like there is some preliminary evidence that even the signals maybe the pain signals might be reduced the biological signals because Meditation in general, some some forms of meditation show deactivation or it lessens the activation of thalamus, which lies in the middle of the brain and it relays all the signals coming from our brainstem to other areas in our brain. And mm. if you reduce the activity of the thalamus, it would make sense that the pain signals are not so strong in your brain, right. if that makes sense. It does. It does. Yeah. Fascinating. I consider pain to be something that is somewhat objective. I mean, no matter where you come from, like there are so many feelings that, for example, in different cultures and in different ways of interpreting the world, we have, we have different understanding. We don't share a universal understanding of many, many things and feelings and concepts. For example, um, in, in a many um, Asian wisdom cultures that have stemmed from the Far East, we have very different types of definitions for, for many human conditions. But for pain, I think that that, that is somehow seems to be a fundamental thing that, that people share 
with each other, among each other, as well as with our closest cousins genetically in the animal kingdom. But but what we're talking about here is a method that can profoundly change our perception of pain. So it goes without saying that these are very powerful techniques if employed. And and it, it seems like like if we can affect something as profound as pain. To me, it sounds like there's no limitation of what we can actually affect. You mentioned that we can build more positivity into our day. What about feelings like anxiety in a modern world that doesn't seem to cut us any slack in terms of sensory stimuli, in terms of sources of external pressure? So uh, what are some of the basics in that field? Yeah, there is a reason meta-analysis looking at the benefits of meditation practices to anxiety and depression, and it shows that they can be used in reducing those. So self-reported anxiety, for example, can be decreased with meditation. I think there is probably a couple of mechanisms how this works. So firstly, um, just the the meta-awareness that we talked about, that you can actually understand and re-evaluate certain situations so say that some sort of um, external noise is making you anxious you're sitting in a coffee house and there is some i don't know some somebody is screaming or something you know or just like a loud music or really loud noise and that makes you anxious so you can kind of detach yourself from that from that stimuli and that would be one mechanism, basically. Then another mechanism could be actually seen in the biological, like stress hormone levels, which has been shown that systematic meditation practice can decrease the cortisol levels, for example, the circulating cortisol levels, and can help in recovering from stressful situations. So in the stressful situation, your cortisol levels may not rise as high as they would normally without the practice. And after the stress, you would be faster to recover from the stress. Mm. And there are biological data that has shown this sort of a mechanism. Also, the fact that, for example, mindfulness meditation has shown to reduce the activity of amygdala, which is the fear center, so to speak. So that, which reacts to the, it's kind of like the first part to react to fear or anxiety inducing situations or signals. So if you have reduced amygdala activity, um, it makes sense that you don't get as anxious. And also it has been shown that there are areas in the prefrontal cortex, for example, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, that can kind of downregulate more this kind of amygdala activity and that you can take sort of a control over over your primitive anxious response to external signals. And then what I think is the final, final oh, maybe not the final, but <laughs> one thing that is really important and I want to mention is that just like increasing positive emotions because, you know, anxiety and depression, they are really, they share so much in common and they are really, really common these days. And um, they share this common mechanism of uh, negative balance or kind of negativity bias, which makes you kind of see situations in a negative light and even actually pay more attention to negative signals in your environment. So, for example, loving kindness meditation has been shown to be really effective in increasing the amount, the, the frequency of felt positive emotions, which means that it helps you to reframe the situations, first of all, in the more positive light. You can do this kind of a, like optimism practices in a sense. 
And also when you when you see things in a more positive light, you come more open to social interactions, to even like it mediates like health behavior such as you do more exercise, you just you feel happier, you you are more likely to seek novel experiences, do stuff that you haven't done before and try different things, which is really interesting because these benefits have shown again to increase your well-being, your life satisfaction, you know, reduce anxiety, depression, but also increase job performance, increase social relationships, increase compassion so that you can become more helpful, for example. And, you know, I think it makes this kind of like vicious cycle, but in a positive (laughs) way, you know, that you get these positive feedback loops more because we we are interacting people. So, you know, the more we... We smile to people, people people smile to us. The more we, you know, give thanks, we get thanks, you know. It, it's like... Uh, it's so, a positive feedback loop, Yeah, really. yeah. What, what it, it's, it's reciprocal determinism. Like what you do, you, you get. And this has been studied in social psychology, for example. So, yeah. So, there is a lot of different, a lot of data about uh, the effects of meditation to anxiety and depression and stress. Yeah. Great. We share some steps of our path. Our paths have some similarities, but but also we come at the practice of mindfulness and meditation from different angles. Inka, I would love to hear how you got into the practice of mindfulness and meditation and the practice of mastering your mind. Thank you for asking. And uh, yeah, it has been a long, long journey and basically started when I was a kid because I was born with uh, inherited migraines and headaches, uh, so cluster headaches. And so I've been, I've been experiencing pain basically since ever since I was a child. So that was actually what led me into thinking about how to control my mind. So when I was a child, I tried a, a lot of medi- medications and tried to improve my or reduce my pain with different kinds of conventional kind of medicines. And at the teenage, I, well, nothing had worked so far. So I thought that, hmm, if I cannot delete the pain, if I cannot make it to go away, I need to learn how to live with it. And that requires to think how to do it, how to manage the distress, the anxiety, all the emotional stuff related to the pain and that's when I started meditating and learning about what pain means to your mind and how can you better make friends with the pain and maybe how can you control the pain and that led me into trying different kind of meditative practices and discovering the whole world of meditation basically. What did it look like? What age were you when you got into the practice of meditation the first time? Well, it was somewhere around 16, 17 when I, I actually, I remember a moment when I was having another migraine, another headache, and I was in a lot of pain. It had been going on for like 10 days and I was just so really tired and I was anxious and I was sad and I was thinking that I had eaten a lot of medication every day taking some pain medicine and it didn't work sometimes it it does but at the time it didn't and 
I remember telling my mother actually that I'm I'm done. I'm done with medication, and I just like I don't think anything works, and I don't want to try it, any medication anymore because I just feel it makes it worse, and I'm tired of having that hope or wish that the pain will go away, and it doesn't, and it's just too frustrating, too distressing, and. At the time we were thinking, my mom said like, okay, let's let's start trying some other things. And I actually went to therapy. So I started therapy uh, related to the pain, a pain therapy. And also started trying all sorts of like diets and natural tools like acupuncture and zone therapy and everything. And just through the therapy and all the other, other interventions, I started slowly realizing that my own mindset matters a lot when it comes to the pain. And that led me to start Googling and start reading books and start listening stuff about about how to control the mind. And I became really interested in just human mind and psychology. And that was kind of like the starting point of this journey to the world of meditation for me. So that was the trigger trying to find a solution for your own pain. And uh, that led you to discover these practices in, in a very practical sense, because I would say that the majority of people these days are looking at meditation from a, like more or less from a tool-like perspective, but, but it is for many people a quest of finding more meaning, more well-being into their lives, being more in the present. But for you, is a very practical tool for frankly ending a type of pain ending a type of suffering yeah definitely that how it started and then you know when you start meditative practice and what i discovered was like wow actually i can use this to so many other things as well so i learned how to do mindfulness i learned how to react to my pain differently But then I realized I started different types of practices and I started noticing other effects, other benefits that I can use basically to every, you know, moment in my life in just like starting from focusing on work, focusing on studies, having more positive emotions, you know, being more present, enjoying small moments more and not being so anxious or distressed about you know, the the general bus of life, so to speak. Exactly. And we'll definitely get into those. But before that, if you could just briefly guide us through the first experience when you felt firsthand the power of meditation in treating the condition that you just described, the, the pain associated with uh, with the headache, with, uh, with the migraine. Oh, yes, definitely. So I think it was after a long kind of course of practice, obviously, and it, it needed time to kind of figure out in my mind, like, what should I do and how should I think of this? And it took some time before I actually was able to start treating the pain signals as an external noise instead of like relating myself into those signals. But I remember one specific moment when I was sitting, I think I was around 18, 19, or maybe a bit younger, and I was sitting in the floor and I was having this headache, this migraine, and I was just sitting there breathing. And I remembered I was surprised that it started going away and it started making me, like, I started feeling good. And at that point, I thought, like, huh, um, you know, um, I think the migraine is going away. So I just stopped the meditation. And as soon as I stopped and got up, it got back. So it's like, okay, something happened. While I was sitting on the floor, while I was just concentrating on my breathing, 
that made me kind of lose the sense of the pain, even though it's there. And I got back to the floor and I continued and the same thing happened. And I was like, wow, okay. So I don't know what's happening. At that time, I wasn't yet looking into the research. I wasn't looking so much into the what happens in the brain specifically. So I was just like focusing on that experience at that moment. And that was an amazing moment that I still can remember like almost 10 years later, which is really cool. Can you remember uh, what type of practice you were doing at that moment? What was the uh, the type of meditation that you were doing when you first noticed this? Yeah, so I was doing focused attention meditation. So basically listening, uh, focusing my attention to one specific external stimuli at a time. So first to, th- uh, to sounds, to bodily singar- signals, to uh, thoughts, and then kind of like shifting into mindfulness mm. and just opening, widening my attentional focus to reach any signal and not being bothered by anything. So at that time, I think my kind of like the signals that came from my body, the pain signals just didn't mean so much to me anymore at that time. And uh, fast forward a handful of years now that you've learned so much more, so much more about managing the uh, condition and distancing yourself from the pain. Mm. What does your typical practice look like? Are you more focused on avoiding the migraine or are you more focused on treating it as you feel it emerging? Or how does that work? Because I'm sure there are many, many people out there who would just love to know about this, this, this potential to heal. Well, that's an excellent question, actually, Anna. I I think what you said about avoiding pain, I'm not sure if it's completely possible for for us humans because, I mean, pain is an evolutionary signal and it's an important signal in our bodies. We all feel pain. I think how my, my current practice is basically learning, and it has been ever since, basically learning to change the suffering into something neutral or even something positive. And you and me talked about this, actually, um, and I would love to hear your ideas about this, so that when you get the pain, you actually use that as a means of practice. So you're like, okay, I'm grateful that I'm having this pain so I can start learning how to control my mind in this moment and this we can use in stressful situations or when we have any other like bothering signal in our environment for example so i think my practice currently is more in that sort of a type and also i have brought this self uh, like this aspect of self compassion so what i'm trying to do is to increase the positive emotions while I'm having the pain so that the physical painful moments wouldn't actually be negative, but they could also be positive moments and I could feel happy uh, in those moments and kind of like trying to build the link between the pain and optimism, if that makes sense. I'll definitely want to hear a (laughs) bit more about this because I'm sure this sounds very counterintuitive to the audience. Do you practice meditation as you feel that there's a risk that you might start to feel a headache or that there might be a a migraine brewing up? Or or is it something that you have incorporated into your daily life as a preemptive measure? How does that look like in your day-to-day life these days? Yeah, so I practice meditation every morning and I feel like... 
When you practice every day, you are more prepared for the moments when the headache comes. So you don't like necessarily have to take a moment to start practicing. If I'm having a lot of pain, I definitely need that moment. But I feel like you can kind of take the, for example, what you have practiced in the morning and just, you know, take that lesson to the moment when you're having a migraine or a headache later on the day. And I think this is the basis of every meditational practice. So in the morning, what you train, then you are more ready for all the things that comes later in your day, you know, absolutely in your own. And, you know, talking about this, I would love to hear because our reasons have for starting the meditation have been really different. But I think we find the tool really like similarly beneficial during today. So it would be really fun to hear about how you use it and what does your daily practice look like and what was your meditation journey? Absolutely. So uh, my own meditational journey, I uh, took up meditation when I was uh, becoming more and more aware. Like growing up, I always knew that I had a had a somewhat more active mind than than most of my peers, and and uh, that's that's been you know like something that I noticed very early on in my personality. I think uh, I definitely uh, self-identify as chronic thinker. I'm a very extroverted person, and I feel that social situations are are charging and and energy. They do they do recharge me in a sense. But if you look at that type of person, there is a trade off, and the trade off is that I need to consciously schedule time to to be uh, by myself and and be my by thoughts, write journals, and also just to to find a way of of winding down. Not that as much in a in a physical sense, but more more in a more in a in a sense of the brain and the mind. And and when I start noticing that that doesn't come to me naturally because I'm very energetic and and sometimes find it hard to say no. Is there's a promise of some interesting discussions or or social interaction. I noticed that that hey maybe there's a practice that could really help me build this into my day and uh once I once I discover that there's a bunch of scientifically researched benefits to meditation a bunch of my friends were doing it who are also entrepreneurs and uh generally I just noticed that that there's definitely something here that I inherently seem to not have a part as a part of my day this was very intriguing to me this was very intriguing to me, and I and I picked up meditation using. I read a couple of books, and, and essentially, what I felt was really beneficial that I've also talked on the show is uh, using an app. It doesn't really matter which app. I started off with with uh, Calm. Nowadays, I've been recommending uh, Calm and um, Headspace equally. Uh, I find that there are benefit or there are strengths in both of the, both of those, and. Uh, Oak app, which is which is a freeware app, is also also uh, 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 one that I, w- I would definitely recommend. It didn't exist back then, but um, I, I definitely noticed that my uh, mind was a lot calmer. I started to find many benefits pretty fast because, as I said, it was definitely not a mind space that I would automatically go into unless I was engaged in sports or music or aesthetics or or a physical repetitive task that demanded all my focus. Yeah, was it mainly through apps that you started the meditation practice? I did read a couple of books, and I also had friends who were, I would say, almost 10 years in into their own practice. So those friends were hugely 
helpful for me. Like uh, they, they gave me a lot of assistance and they gave me a lot of support in, in starting my practice. But the apps definitely helped me build the daily routine. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like nowadays, there are so many sources that you can use from YouTube, apps, books. Which books did you read, by the way? Eckhart Tolle has been, has been very essential to me. I realized that it's it's probably not the optimal one to start with for many people, but I was already reading a lot of philosophy at the time, and uh, I've been uh, fascinated uh, by philosophy as long as I can remember, and I could definitely connect many of the concepts that Eckhart Tolle uh, wrote in his books. I-, I could connect those with many philosophical concepts, and, and those I found like, hmm, this can't be a coincidence. Like there has to be something more. And there there seems to be a type of practice that people throughout millennia have, have managed to tap into these states. And this to me was very intriguing. I have to say that for, you know, like when I got started with meditation, it was definitely, I was definitely just dying to just, you know, like peek behind the veil to find what was there. So for me, there was definitely an adventurous calling as well as a motivation and and also like uh, definitely a, a way of seeking another kind of kind of another form of or, or another state of consciousness. So it was definitely an exploratory journey for me at first. So I, I would definitely say that as an outdoor adventurer or someone who was drawn to the extremes in terms of physical performance and also like cognitive and mental pursuits, that was definitely like. I've got to crack this meditation thing, which is completely <laughs> oh, yeah. not the way I'm starting meditation, <laughs> as you know. But, uh, but that, that was definitely uh, those were definitely forces that that I can I can now identify were in play when I when I started my practice. Oh, wow, cool! So, what happened like with your thinking? Well, like you started your practice and it was the daily, and then you told that you were a chronic thinker, so you wanted to kind of tackle into that one. What happened? Definitely, like like one of the first things I noticed with meditation was like. Like, firstly, like how disorganized my mind really is. But I, I guess that's that, that's a very common yeah. experience for many people. But becoming aware that there is a way of, there's another way. Because throughout my life, I've been using music and expression in a similar fashion. So I could feel like, hmm, there is something similar in the state of just watching my thoughts and watching my breath. There's something similar in this. It's a lot like when I've been playing the drums for a good 30, 45 minutes and just really focusing it's full on focus, a, isn't just, it? Just yeah. really focusing on a on a on a on a rhythm, on on the position, on, on how I hold the drumsticks or when I was uh, playing the piano, how how my how my uh, fingers were aligned. Just focusing on a singular task and, and just finding like hmm the, the task can suddenly apparently be watching my thoughts. It can be watching my watching my breath, and that was to me a huge surprise because I, I hadn't realized that that was a that was a state of mind that I would I would actually be able to tap into that way. Yeah, there there is a lot of literature showing that like this kind of full focus uh, focused attention can lead you into the state of flow, which can reduce stress, anxiety, and kind of make you make you more present in the moment, make you feel like connected to everything and just like lose the track of time, you know, and lose all the kind of self doubts or this kind of like anxious thoughts. So definitely I can relate to that because I play piano and yeah, I, I used that in, um, when I was younger as well to the same purpose. So yeah, I, I feel like many, many musicians can d- definitely relate when they start their meditative practice. Like, hmm, 
this has a lot to do with the state that I'm in when I'm in an optimal creative state. Because yeah. you're very you're very focused, but you're still very aware of your surroundings and very aware of certain processes that are going on throughout your body and throughout your mind and throughout your creative output. But but then again, you're not. In a way, I would like you're kind of detached from the outcome in a, in, a, in a very cool way, which also happens to me when I'm uh, very very deeply engaged in in uh, sports like climbing and mountaineering and yeah, running. Yeah, and and running definitely. We talked about running with you a bit. There there's a certain uh, certain physical element to running that that can definitely become uh, a sort of meditative state unlocking unlocking action yeah and definitely the process seems a bit similar as well so first you you know it's hard to start focused attention meditation at the beginning you're just following your breath so it might be or your breathing so it might be you know it's it's hard first because your mind wanders and you feel like it's hard so in a similar way when you start to learning to play an instrument or a new song you know you make errors and you feel like ah oh, it's a bit frustrating but when you actually learn in learn it you get into the flow it's just it's so easy and light and this i I feel the same happens with focused attention meditation but it kind of needs the moment of transition into that state and yeah i think that's the that's the part where we struggle the most i agree and uh, one thing that i that i definitely would, would would love to note here too is even though that these even though these states have a lot in common or uh, many of them seem to have you know like bear some relation to one another i still do feel that they're they're not entirely the same, are they? Like, like I feel like I feel like uh, when I'm practicing meditation, I do feel some similarities to a flow state, some similarities to the ecstatic states and the feeling of oneness that you sometimes get when you're when you're uh, just hanging on the wall, rock climbing. You know, like kind of you know, like ten percent, twenty percent of you is is just observing the wind and the conditions, and another twenty percent is just you know like looking at the next few meters and and the next pitch and and the rest of you is just dead focused on the next move and kind of you know like uh, afraid for your life in a way like you're you're just so super focused like i feel like these moments for me they're moments of unity they can bring about they don't always but they can bring about moments of a sort of ego dissolution but it's still very different from what i might experience during during meditation when i got started i noticed that i would be a lot calmer i could notice i, could, I would start noticing like even even after a couple of months of, of practice i would suddenly start and this is by the way this is by no means perfect practice this is by no means 20 30 minutes every day i struggled in the beginning for sure uh, but I started to notice that I could kind of start calling my own bullshit and, and kind of started noticing my thoughts as they emerged and not, not, I didn't have that sort of a strong identification with them as, as I did before. So what are the main three areas of meditation and what sets them apart from each other? So there are many different kinds of meditations basically, but let's say the three that we Maybe I think it, they have the clearest construct in the in a scientific world in the scientific studies are the focused attention meditation, mindfulness meditation, or open monitoring meditation, and loving kindness meditation. And all of these practices actually stems from way back, from like since thousand years. These have been practiced in Buddhist and uh, Jainic and yogic traditions. So these are all really ancient practices, and. These all have kind of different sort of a flavor in them. So, for example, focused attention meditation would be something where you 
So in a really practical sense, you start to observing your breathing, for example. And the whole practice is the single pointed awareness in that one, you know, one single. So it can also be repeating mantra or, or looking, looking at, at staring, staring at a, at a cup, cup in the, the table, table hmm. or, or staring, staring at candle, candle flame, flame where your mind wants to wander away. But when you notice that, you return it back to whatever you were observing in that moment. So it seems like a really, really simple thing, right? But I'm sure like everybody who has ever tried meditation can relate that that's actually pretty damn hard. <laughs> and I, it's like, it's a really good practice because it shows benefits in sustained attention. So where, when you, let's say you work and your mind wanders somewhere thinking about the dinner, you observe that single and you bring it back to your work. And you can take the benefits of breathing. I think it's the most simplest one. Like every we breathe all the time. And we don't need tools for observing our breathing. And we can do like a three-minute practice. Or a five-minute practice. Or a seven-minute practice. Or a ten-minute practice. And some meditators do like one hour of breath awareness. So observing focused attention to the breathing. And that's one form of a meditation that uh, has been studied in the sci science as well and shows great benefits in, well, as I told, like um, self-regulation, concentration, and sustained attention. So we have this default mode network in our brain, which is basically active when we think about the future or think about the past or we use our imagination or we dream. It shows that it kind of shuts down this this pathway and it activates another pathway which is the task positive network which is the attention network mm, so attention more in the in the front parts of the brain and these two networks work in in opposition so they are never on at the same time it's like on off switch of the brain or or the networks And uh, it has been shown that, you know, for example, you can reduce your rumination or sort of like a, when your mind just wanders away just by increasing the focus to your breathing because that activates the network in the brain that shuts down the networks that were, you know, causing all those, all those uh, mind-wandering signals. So this is, this is the focused attention one. Then we have open monitoring or mindfulness meditation, which is kind of like the opposite of focused attention, where you widen your attention to reach all of the signals in your environment in the present moment. So let's say, for example, in this very moment, we would be observing those noises around the bird singing, you would be hearing my voice, you would be sensing the temperature in the air, the brush of the clothing against your skin, anything that comes from your interception. Maybe you can feel like, okay, your stomach feels like you need breakfast or, you know, kind of like something like that, or there is pain in your knee. And what do you do is you practice just to regard those as, as signals, as noises. You, you don't think what is the meaning of the pain in my, in my noise or what is the feeling in my stomach or what is the meaning of the feeling in my stomach. You just take it in as a signal and that shows reducing stress. It, it shows that it, it's an effective way to reduce stress and reduce anxiety and just calm the mind. It's a, it's a really nice practice, I think. And I think it, it's, 
one of the most beneficial ones in this modern life where we constantly are surrounded by signals that we cannot control. There is so much noise around us. We get messages to our phones all the time. And every time we get a message, we hear that phone beeping. We think like, oh, what's the meaning? Is this a good news, bad news? Do I need to respond? And when you can kind of observe that as just a beep, as a sound, as a signal, you know, you think like, oh, there was a funny high-pitched sound, <laughs> you know, but I don't have to react to it. I can just observe it as a signal. That makes life so much easier. And yeah, really widely studied meditation practice. And then we have this third one, which I think has a really special component in it. It stems from a Buddhist tradition. It's called metta or loving kindness. M-E-T-T-A. Yeah. It's right. a Pali, metta. Pali word, metta. And currently is referred as loving kindness in the scientific literature. Uh, loving kindness, um, it's a good word, but we need to remember in this context that love does not refer to a romantic love. Barbara Fredrickson has kind of redefined love in this context of loving kindness. And she t tells that this is, um, this is a shared micro moment of shared positive emotion between two people. A micro moment of shared positive emotion, emotion. between two people. Yeah. Hmm, that's a great description or, or, a, or a great way of reframing non-romantic love in, yeah. in, in this context. Yeah, so the kind of a love that mother and child feels towards each other or, or good friends. And it's a practice of goodwill, which has shown to increase positive emotion. And in that practice, you basically... Well, sit in the floor or chair or wherever you want to sit or lay down in a bed. And you repeat these phrases. So you think about specific people. First, you think about yourself. And you you wish well to those people. So you think about yourself and you say, for example, the traditional phrases go, May I be safe? May I be happy? May I be comfortable? May I be or live with ease? Or may I be at ease? And you can obviously say anything that you want, like, may I be relaxed? May I have happiness and joy? And may I be calm? May I stay calm? It's like affirm affirmations in a sense. And then you think about somebody you love, for example, a family member, and you repeat those same phrases, may you be safe and may you be happy and may you be relaxed and have, be comfortable and, you know, have joy and happiness and health in your life. And then you think about some acquaintance that you don't know but you have seen around that plays a specific role in your life. For example, your bus driver or the person that serves you food in the coffee house that you normally go to. And this is an amazing practice because it makes you acknowledge that all of these people that we see around us in a daily basis that we may not even recognize in their lives, they want to be happy and well. Like it's a fundamental human need to just feel, you know, good. They want to feel good and they probably want their relatives and family to feel good as well. So you start to wishing them, you think them proactively and you wish them well. And I noticed that this makes you more, you know, it, it makes you more pro-social with the people that maybe you weren't before. And then you think about somebody that you have had some disagreement with or maybe you have some even anger towards some person. It can be a colleague or it can be a political character or it can be, you know, even your friend that you had a fight with and you think them and you realize that, you know, it doesn't matter what I feel towards them. 
they probably want to feel happy and well. And you start actively wishing them well. May you be happy. May you be well. May you be comfortable. You know, because they have the similar right to feel that as yourself. And I think this is an amazing practice in this world where we have so many people, so many different personalities, characters. And obviously there are, you know, people that we connect less and people that, you know, we, we find their behavioral patterns maybe even frustrating. But in a very same way, people, you know, some people find us really irritating, you know? <laughs> so what we would probably want to see is that they still, you know, also want us to be happy and feel good. So we are practicing, you know, that wishing them goodwill as well, which makes us more acceptive and more pro-social. I think it makes life a lot easier when you think like, it doesn't really matter what I think about that person. I hope, I hope he still feels, you know, good and happy. And he probably wants his family to feel good and happy. So this is the practice. And this has shown you know, you can extend this to reach the whole universe, the world, and just realize that we are all in this together. We all have the same basic needs to feel good. And it's an amazing practice. It has shown a lot of a lot of benefits, um, not only not only like relaxation and reducing anxiety and stress, but also it has shown to increase or downregulate uh, the even actually pro-inflammatory genes, which is amazing. Wow. Yeah. Pro-inflammatory genes. genes. Yeah. And also it, it can decrease the amount of circulating inflammation markers in your blood circulation. Uh, it reduces the um, amount of cortisol. It can increase heart rate variability and decrease heart rate. And it has been shown, like there is causal data showing this sort of biological changes. So something like when we feel more positive and we can be more relaxed, more comfortable around, you know, in different situations around different people, you know, our body responds to that in a really, really positive way. And it also can be used as like, you know, before bed so that you can relax more before you drift off to sleep. And yeah, for me, actually, personally, it's an interesting phenomena. I see better dreams when I do this just before the bed. I think maybe my brain starts processing, you know, this kind of positive emotions and just mm. makes me more relaxed and I get more deep sleep. I have this aura ring I measure my sleep with. Right, which uses an array of, of metrics to to measure your sleep phases, right? Yeah, yeah. Like including so, HRV and... And, yeah, uh, nighttime HRV, REM, deep sleep, and the amount of sleep that I get, my sleep onset latency. So a lot of really detailed metrics of my sleep. So whenever I meditate before bed, especially when I do loving kindness meditation or mindfulness meditation, I can see improvements in my sleep. And that's really encouraging. So I think this measuring thing is, uh, is highly beneficial when you have established a meditation practice. Wow, you covered an, an amazing amount of benefits here. And uh, one thing that I've, I've personally noticed, or I could resonate with many of them personally, but, but w what I've noticed uh, is using different types of trackers, as you were just talking about your, your sleep metrics. I've definitely noticed that a pre-bedtime meditation tends to lead to higher quality sleep in terms of the percentage of, firstly, like um, reducing the time of falling asleep, and also increasing the amount of the sleep that we can currently consider more useful, including REM. 
but what I found really interesting and the, what I what I haven't noticed, and I need to pay more attention to this, is the quality of my dreams, is the positivity of my dreams. I, I thought that was that was something really fascinating. So yeah. that would imply that your personal experience is that you can improve the quality of the dreams. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think have, that's yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read any scientific studies about this. It would be interesting to search if there are any, but this is definitely my personal experience. And uh, yeah, funnily enough, I have heard this experience from some of my friends as well who do loving kindness just before bed. <laughs> that's so great. definitely worth trying. <laughs> Something that's very that everyone can relate to is the frustration that we feel when we have when we get served by a rude person in a restaurant or when we get uh, cut off in traffic. I, I was taking a taking a taxi two days ago and and suddenly I, I was just I just uh, felt this immense surprise when my taxi driver started yelling curse words at another person in traffic. And that kept going for for twenty or thirty seconds, and I was, and and that really affected me too. Of course, like I I was surprised, and but that's something that that so many people go through every day during their commute, and that's something uh, that's a very primal way of reacting to something so so usual that we go through in our daily lives when we when we're driving our car, and and uh, this is something that we spend up to a couple of hours every day doing. So it would feel like an essential improvement to understand that the person who just cut you off in traffic is also trying to get somewhere. We don't know anything about their personal situation. They might be rushing to a hospital. They might be rushing to something that they're, they're, they're afraid of missing. We don't know anything about that person. And in fact, oftentimes we are that person to other people. Oh, exactly. And, and yeah. becoming aware of that is, is something very powerful and that, that would serve me and many other people well in their daily lives. Oh, that's really well put. Yeah, I totally agree. So understand that, that we might be the assholes that we're cursing at <laughs> yes. in traffic when we get cut off or, or when someone is, is not behaving in a way that we wish they would in daily situations. Yeah, I mean, aware we, are, that. we are all humans and we all have our nonsense. So we just need to be aware that, you know, we are not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. And we can be more acceptive and more more mindful about, you know, other people regardless of how we feel like a superpower being able to understand that that person is going through the same processes as you and they're also looking for the same type of ex- likely looking for the same type of existence and mind state as you are but they're coming coming at it from a different different situation in their life yeah and there is a specific practice of of this kindness based meditation of compassion meditation where you actually in those situations if you train compassion meditation you kind of you start to relate to that or you start to see that pain that the person is having the suffering mm. and you become instead of become irritated you become helpful so you want to make them feel better you want to make them feel good you want to kind of reduce their stress and with meditation you first of all can as we have talked about you can detach yourself from your frustrated emotions and if you do compassion meditation, you may develop the ability to actually help that person to turn the situation around. By your your acceptance, your willingness to help, you, you can see the options that you have available to help that person and increase their happiness. And that's like you, you turn the situation around, right? And meditation so that, you know, it's easier for you to take your ego, your frustration, your anger, you take your ego out of the picture 
and you pay your full attention, full focus on the other person, how can you increase their well-being? Incredible. This is a, it's a very powerful tool of not only turning your own everyday experience around to a more proactive, more positive state, but also affecting the people around you in a, in a deeply positive way instead of aggravating everyday that's, frustrating situations. Yeah, that's why I'm like, um, I think it was Richard Davidson to point out that by meditating, you can kind of increase the well-being of the world. You can, you know, it's it's a it's a pro-social practice. And you can you can change the world for better just by sitting in stillness and working on your mind and working on your own emotional processing, your own focus, your own attention, your own you know meta-awareness skills. That's an incredibly powerful message. Yeah. Talking about the morning priming practices that are that are gaining popularity all around the world. This is something that I have personally experienced to be a very useful way of starting my days, but I don't have that much understanding of what's actually happening there. Obviously, it, it's a whole combination of starting your day in, on, on a proactive stance of reflection and also setting positive intentions, but could you uh, describe for our listeners what these morning priming practices and morning meditations are all about? Yeah, so it's a similar kind of practice that any other practice that you do in your life, right? So basically, every moment in our life is a practice. So we, we decide how we, you know, use our time to which sort of an activities. So many people, you know, do sports in the morning, and they find it's the best time to do sports because you have, you know, just woken up. So you feel kind of like energetic and your body has been recovered. Similarly, your mind has just like rearranged kind of or consolidated the memories and refreshed the brain so it's an amazing time to work on your brain also you are not so your head is not full of the daily stuff yet so um, what i mean by this is that if you leave your day uh, like you you do your tasks and then in the evening you you meditate it might be that you are thinking about everything that happened during your day the morning that's why i think morning is a really fruitful and beneficial time to do to meditation or practice and why like to practice in the first place is to set the tone for the day so we have noticed that we can prime our mind and everything basically primes our mind all the time so the signals that we see the sounds that we hear the the people that we talk to the discussion the word even the words that we hear changes the way that where we focus our attention or what we think or how we behave. So, for example, a good example is um, the study where they um, made participants to read elderly or all age-related words. And they told that, I think it was, they, they were told that it's a recall situation where they need to remember the words later. And then the other group was reading words related to young age. And then they made them to trans transition to, to walk to a different room. And the actual study was about how fast they walk. And those primed with all age-related words walked significantly slower <laughs> than the other group. So, so those words somehow became their reality in that. Yeah, yeah, moment. yeah. They took took those words in and they started behaving similarly. So in the morning, if you practice focus, if you practice positive emotions gratitude for sure it affects to the whole day your subsequent moments and how you see the words how you focus your attention to different stuff and say you do a 
gratitude practice in the morning. So that means you think about things that you feel grateful for. And you may think really simple things like, oh my God, morning coffee is amazing. I love, I love having my morning coffee. And then you go to the coffee machine and you realize like, oh my God, I have this here. And you know, it makes me so happy. I'm ungrateful about this. And maybe during today when you drink coffee, you again feel like, oh yeah, this is something that I'm actually really grateful for. So it makes you notice these kind of little things that you wouldn't maybe notice necessarily or, you know, kind of like mindfully be grateful for during the day. So there are many different types of practices that you can do in the morning. But for example, practicing focus, positive emotion and gratitude have been shown to be quite beneficial. For me, uh, the morning priming effects have been especially significant in setting priorities and in, in setting my priorities straight. When I finally do dive into work, I don't feel as overwhelmed as I would when I've done morning priming and a and a, and a kind of a focusing, centering exercise before that. And it seems that, that even, even a, a relatively short amount of time, five to ten minutes, seems to be quite sufficient in this. Definitely, definitely. And there are studies showing that, for example, after a cognitively demanding task, so let's say it's a work task that really like increases your anxiety and it's, it's, it's demanding, just doing five minutes mindfulness meditation can actually recover that sort of a sympathetic nervous system activation and take kind of like regain your self-regulating abilities compared to the condition when you where you don't do the meditation so yeah those even five minutes three minutes i like one of my favorite exercises is three minutes mindfulness meditation so in every hour for example in between every hour i would take a three minute mindfulness break that seems, while you're doing the practice, it seems like a long time. But I mean, really, three minutes is nothing, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, everybody has the time to it's take. It's a massive investment to the day. If anything you can do for three minutes has a positive effect for the rest of your day, that's probably one of the best. I, I would probably like put that in the category of like the top 1% of, of time invested within any given day. <laughs> yeah, I think, for example, in, in Tim Ferriss's Tools of Titan book, where he interviews the, you know, world's most successful people, basically, and what they do, like 80% do meditation. And that's that comes in the book all the time. And I think it's a meta skill, because it's not that, you know, you don't practice for the for the morning. There is a state effect which makes you in the moment more mindful, but there is also a trade effect that can, you know, change the general way that you behave or act or react to different situations. And you, you don't practice for the mat, you know, you practice for the life, the day. Yeah, I find it definitely, it's not a, like a, it's not a but it, positive addition to my days. It's a necessity, necessity that I can, you know, stay calm and happy during a demanding day. You've also created um, morning priming. Uh, yes. Morning priming. Um, uh, do you call it a program or do you call it a recording? Or, or what do you actually call, uh, say, a 10-minute recording of a morning priming that you a listen practice. to? It's a practice. Yeah. It's a practice. You, you've created one of those. Can you, can you uh, shortly describe it to our listeners? Yeah. So, for example, this Ambronite morning priming meditation that can be found in the webpage is um, I 
in the credits. I will put on the show notes, of course. Yeah, yeah, obviously. So I integrated some of the mostly research practices into the moment and into the practice. And the idea, the whole idea was that it has this kind of a short, easy to do tasks that, you know, takes the, the whole thing takes, I think, less than 13 minutes. So it's easy to integrate in your morning. It takes no time, but there all of the practices, you know, have been studied and have shown a good effect. So it starts with focused attention where you concentrate your mind on your breathing, which actually decreases the kind of like future planning and ruminating and the mind wandering. And then it goes into into gratitude. And gratitude is an amazing positive emotion and, you know, widely researched at these days, how just focusing on some specific things in our daily lives that makes us feel happy and grateful can increase our positivity and well-being and satisfaction to life because we see those moments more often. And by actually noticing or practicing that emotion, which is an emotion that activates our parasympathetic nervous system, makes us more relaxed and calm, we can also recreate that bodily relaxation during the day, you know, by practicing this. So it primes you for that and it gives you the tools for that. And then comes to the appreciating of people. And for this, you can integrate the loving kindness practice, the practice of goodwill, the kind of social aspect. Here we focus on just the key people in your life. And it also has a gratitude component in this one. So you focus on the key people in your life and you think about their good qualities, like that you are, why you are really grateful for having them in your life and just appreciating the fact that you are surrounded by these people who support you and love you. And then you go more into the kind of like, let's say, practical for the day kind of practice. So it shows that to make something happen, you need a specific goal, right? Right. So you have some sort of endpoint that you are trying to reach in order to go to the next level. So here you can think about any specific life goal that you have. And then you think that you have already gained that life goal you have already succeeded so this we know from sports psychology that the more you think about the performance and the succeeding and so you are creating the potential you're creating more motivation and you are creating the uh, increasing the potential for you to actually actually achieve the task and then we have the intention for the day so it might be a bit overwhelming to think that okay i have this goal let's say it's um making a company or, you know, selling certain amount of products or writing a book or running a marathon. So it's, it's, it's a big goal, right? So then you think about the smaller goal related to that goal, or it doesn't have to be related to that goal, but you just set a daily intention. So you say yourself, you, you set an intention. It might be an attitude as well, but a, a task that you need to be done, like today I will do this. And that's your promise to yourself. And this is the practice. It's really easy. It's really short and it's every, everyone can do it. And everyone, you know, think about these things all the time in their daily lives. So it's now just put into a systematic form of kind of like this effective, short practice. You can start building those constructs in your mind. 
I love that we're also able to uh, take this into action, and anyone listening to this can take direct action and try this right away. Yeah. This has been super powerful for me in reducing anxiety, improving my daily focus, actually just feeling a lot more a lot more positive about working towards any tough goals I have set for the day. And uh, for me, uh, what's been especially important in this is that it's actually something that I can, I can uh, actually commit to doing because it's not, it's not something that's massive time investment. It's actually really short. It's just a bit over 10 minutes. So I encourage anyone to try it out because no amount of uh, talking about it can compare to actually trying it out for yourself. For me, it's been really powerful. Well, thank you so much, Simo. I'm so happy to hear that, actually, because I know that you are a hardcore meditator and you do like two-hour sessions and that you can feel that, you know, 13 minutes can be really beneficial for you and already like decrease anxiety and that you like the structure that like that's a really nice um, thing to hear, an amazing thing to hear. So thank you so much for sharing this. And also something that I want to point out is that uh, I've also brought some elements of this into some of my some of my physical training, not only not only the uh, brain-powered challenges that I face and meeting the expectations of, of uh, set by other people and set by myself, but also conquering physical challenges, for example, during climbing, during running, during uh, alpinism. For example, in, when I was climbing a mountain in, in Kazakhstan, I employed some of these methods to become like really focused and calm in situations where that it all didn't always work out for other people on the mountain and i've really noticed the value of these practices especially gratitude and setting small achievable intentions that you can you can easily grasp and this is something very similar to the goal setting and the psychological training of top athletes described by nfl players hockey players formula 1 drivers and uh, and uh, throughout the world of professional sports and what i want to conclude with is that these are not technique these are not esoteric techniques these are well researched methods that have been employed by so many people around the world and that work consistently not only in professional sports not only in hardcore people not only in hardcore meditators but i would say that even these work especially well for people who don't have a meditation practice because they're just so practical and so easy to to try out and experience for yourself. Yeah, and these kind of a practices we, we encounter all the time in our, like, we do goal setting in work and in school and, you know, so these are just put into your morning so that you will feel more more kind of constructive in building the life that you specifically see important for yourself that would make you the most happiest. Exactly. Amazing tools to build more meaningfulness and appreciation for, for daily experience, like a good cup of coffee and, and just the fact that we are alive and yeah. well and all the positive things that we have around us, all the meaningful connections we can make during and throughout our days. Thank you so much, Inka. Thank you so much, Simo. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Amber Knight Superhero Podcast. Please check out the links, show notes, and other episodes at amberknight.com slash podcast. That's A-M-B-R-O-N-I-T-E dot com slash podcast. Thanks again, and catch you in the next episode.